0: So I want you to picture a scene with me. It's a warm spring day. You're walking through a, a park nearby your house, and you're just going for a stroll, and you, you sit down on a bench, and you're just enjoying the morning. You hear the birds chirping, and you see walking along a, a man and what looks like his his young daughter, nine-year-old kid, and, and they come, and they sit in the bench right across the path, so you can hear what they're talking, and you hear them sit down, and the little girl, if you've ever seen a nine-year-old girl, having fun with Dad, she's, her legs are swinging, and she's just having a great time. She says, Dad, does this mean you're coming home? And he says, you know, sweetie, uh, that's why we're here in the park. Mom and I are getting divorced. We just, we just can't get along. And uh, you'll get to hang out with me every weekend. We'll have a great time, but this is best for us. We just can't, we can't get along. This is best for you. We're not going to be fighting anymore. And you'll understand when you get older that this is what needed to happen. And you know and I know that little girl won't get over it. That little girl will be impacted for the rest of her life. Her view of men will be impacted by that decision. Her idea of relationships will be impacted by that. And maybe you were that little girl. Or maybe you were the dad that had to have that conversation. I start with that story just to point to the picture How important marriage is. This is our our second last week talking about relationships, talking about marriage in particular. And our marriages define our society. I don't know if you realize that. If you look at our culture right now and what's happening to kids, it's heartbreaking. I mean, last summer I I was uh, speaking at junior high camp, junior high camp, and there were several girls in the group that came with us struggling with their sexual identity. Junior hires, seventh graders, And you can track all these problems back to a breakdown in the home. All these ideas of of sexual identity, of men's roles and women's roles, and all this is falling apart, and we can trace it back. I mean, we can actually really trace things back to the 70s and back to marriage uh, breaking down and the baby boomer generation uh, divorcing more than any before, and all that has passed down. And now we have a new generation, Gen X and Gen Y and millennials, whatever you want to call them, and everything has changed. Either they don't get married... Or they do, and they're actually doing better than some of us who are older because they've seen it done poorly, but things have been warped. And so we're we're talking about this today to go to to say it doesn't have to stay that way. And especially within the church, it doesn't have to stay that way. And so we're looking at today the question: why do we fight? Why do we fight with those that we love? You know, as a pastor, I have the, the pleasure of doing premarital counseling and sometimes marital counseling. And the thing that comes up over and over is just this picture in the home of tension, of fighting, where the husband comes home from work, and that's it. They just fight, or the wife comes home from whatever she was, and they just fight, and the kids are are tense, and there's this eggshell. But it doesn't have to be that way. And so what we're going to look at today is why we fight. And we're going to be in James. So go ahead and turn to James. James 4, 1 through 6, where James, the half-brother of Jesus, addresses exactly this question. Why are we fighting? Why are there quarrels? Now, if you're not married, this applies to you. We're applying this to marriage, but James here is talking to the entire church. He's writing to Christians. And in that scene, these Christians within the church, they were fighting inside families, but within the church, how many churches have you heard of splits because of fighting within the church? What about parent-kid relationships? How about even at work? This applies to any of those relationships. Why do we fight? And we're going to see three reasons why we fight in these verses. Again, we're going to be in James chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 to begin with. James writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Lord Jesus, I come before you one more time as we look at your half brother here writing about fights and quarrels. God, I pray for the marriages in here, the parent-child relationships in here, the other relationships in here. God, if we have fights and quarrels going on, I pray that you would change our hearts, that you would point us to you, that we would enjoy the life that you have for us. In your name, amen. So he begins with the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And this is how we're beginning the, the whole sermon. Why do we fight? And he gives us the answer right away. He says, is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. Passions, that's the word hedonism. If you're familiar with that word hedonism, hedonism refers to a philosophy of life that it's all about being happy. Anybody know a society that has swallowed that philosophy, hook, line, and sinker? That's, That's our world right now. That's our country. It's all about being happy. How many times have you heard parents say, as long as my kids are happy, I'll be content? Or do whatever makes you happy. That's kind of our theme right now in this country. Whatever makes you happy. That is hedonism. A selfish pursuit of my own happiness. And James starts out saying that is the source of fighting and quarrels. It is our passions. Hedonism. And now these aren't just passions. I mean, there's some things we want. And there's a lot of good things we want. This is referring to ungodly things or Even good things. I mean, it's good to desire a a healthy relationship. But it's desiring those things so strongly and so selfishly that we will pursue them to get them no matter what. So it is hedonism. And so this is, if you're a note taker, number one. Why do we fight? Number one, ungodly desires. Show of hands who has any ungodly desires. Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Because if we were honest, we all would raise our hands. The source is ungodly desires desires. Now, let's be clear real quick. I thought Preston did a great job a few weeks ago when he taught on on stewardship and, and giving, and he ended it with God doesn't need our money, but he wants us to have the abundant life. And for us to experience that life, it means we're generous. It's the same here. God wants our relationships to thrive. Have you ever thought about that? Husbands and wives, he wants your marriage to be awesome. He wants you to want to go home. He wants you to enjoy that, and He's given you everything to make that possible. Kids, there's some in here. He wants your home to be a wonderful place to be. He wants you to get along with your parents and vice versa. God wants us to have the abundant life, and Jesus came to make it happen. So, happiness is a good thing. I know I combined two words there, apple. It's what happens when you eat an apple. You're happy, never mind. Um, God wants these things for us, and He makes it possible. But this is a philosophy of filling what I want no matter what. Now, look at this. In verse one, he says, Your passions that are at war within you. Have you ever read this before and thought about that? What does that mean that these passions are at war within us? There's actually a a picture of kind of an internal struggle. So, being a child of the 80s, I love the cartoons. Looney Tunes are the best. You ever have the thing where the angel pops up here and the demon pops up here? That's kind of this picture of our passions at war. Poof, hey, you should do this. I do want that. Poof, no, no, you should do, oh, I want that too. That's this picture of the flesh versus the spirit. That's the battle. And here in James, James talks about it in worldliness. He says there's God's way of doing life and then there's worldliness. And it's the same idea. Going the way of the world is going the way of the flesh. The flesh is this body and all the desires and and frailties and things that come with it. Some are good, a lot are not good. The idea of flesh is the fallen nature that we have uh, as descendants of, of Adam and Eve, that we are born into sin, we are, and that's our flesh. Our flesh wants to sin. Now, when you become a Christian, your flesh still wants to sin, but you're now given the Holy Spirit that wants to live in and through you so you will have that abundant life. That's the battle. So if you became a Christian and you thought everything was going to be great and then you struggled with sin afterward, welcome to the club. It's called sanctification, becoming like Jesus. And sanctification is a street fight that is mostly internal. I wanted to read how Paul describes this in Romans. In Romans 7, verses 15 through 20, you can turn there or you can just listen. But in Romans 7, Paul writes it this way. For I do not do what I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin which dwells in me. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Does anybody experience that in marriage where you just had another fight and you walk away going, why did we do that again? We promised yesterday we wouldn't do it. And now 24 hours later, we're doing it again. We keep doing the things we don't want. Now, here, Paul writing to Christians, and here James is also writing to Christians with this struggle, but this is not an excuse. In fact, in Romans, Paul won't stay there. What Paul is describing is the life of a Christian when operating in the flesh, which we can. Paul will go on in Romans 8 and 9 and go, but here's how a Christian really should live, by walking in the Spirit. And in Galatians 5.16, he says it very well. He says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh, so we're not stuck in this ba- to lose this battle. We're stuck in the battle. Uh, sorry, as long as you're in the body, you're stuck in the battle, and you will be tempted to sin until the day that you die. But we can win the battle consistently as we walk in the Spirit. And so here, this is what James is talking about. Your passions are at war within you. Your bad ones that want to be filled, but then there's the good ones too, given by the Holy Spirit, that want to be filled. Which one's going to win? How are you going to walk by the Spirit? Or by the flesh, or using James's language, are you going to walk the way the world says or the way God says? We started this last week in Proverbs, where he said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we saw that wisdom is a skill to live by. So the way we are skillful in relationships, it begins with doing it God's way, no matter what. So why do we fight? Because we have ungodly desires that are fighting to be filled. Let's look on here at verse 2. It says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Here's, here's the picture. Why do we fight and quarrel? Because we want what we want so bad that we will kill to get it. Now, murder there is hyperbole. You know He is exaggerating a little bit to make a point. But, James often echoes Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at a couple months ago, if you can remember back that far. But on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through basically godly living. He takes the Old Testament law and makes it more difficult. And in that, Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, which is one of the Ten Commandments. He says, but I say, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. James is echoing that idea here. That's why he's using murder, because he's referring back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That you don't have, you want so bad, you will murder to get it. You will destroy somebody else. And by the way, as a marriage counselor, this, is, this happens all the time in marriage. You've got the couples that come home, and she's not getting what she wants, and he's not getting what he wants, and so they just want to destroy each other. They do it verbally. They come in, and they verbally cut down. You're worthless. You're no good. I want a divorce. By the way, that's, that right there is huge manipulation. That is an ungodly way of doing it. Never threaten divorce. That's off the table. You committed a lifelong relationship when you started. That's off the table. But here we go in to to murder, to destroy. Now let's step outside the marriage. How many times have you seen this or heard of this within churches? I talked to a pastor just a couple weeks ago that shared a story about a church that he was part of. And this battle arose for power between elders, different elders and pastors. And it was just this ugly thing of who's going to be in control. And then it gets to telling s- stories about the other person, trying to grab your crowd. And you go, here's why that person's bad. And then this one's over here grabbing their crowd. Here's why that. And some things they're saying are true and some are not. It's just this horrible, ugly picture. And this happens in the church all the time. This happens in families all the time where we want what we want so bad, we're going to hurt others to get it. I mean, Paul writes in his letters, he says, rather be wronged. Just be wronged. God is so great. It's about him. Just be wronged. We're going to see more as we look on. But here, number two, why do we fight? It's a commitment to have your desires fulfilled. I included that because you're going to have ungodly desires. You're still in this flesh. That's temptation, that's not sin. It's when you start giving in to those temptations that it is sin. So here we can have those wants and recognize, nah, that's the world's way and I'm not going to do that. Or we can recognize those wants and give in. So here we fight because we have a commitment to have our desires fulfilled. Again, it's one thing to have an ungodly desire, another to try and fill it. When fighting happens, it means our flesh is winning. What's the root? Selfish pride. It is. The root is selfish pride. It's about me. This morning, I was my personal reading was in Proverbs, and it was interesting how Proverbs really uh, hit this nail on the head. Maybe it was God saying, "Share this verse." But Proverbs nineteen eleven. This is the same one that says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." He says, "Good sense, wisdom, good sense makes one slow to anger." And it is his glory to overlook an offense. And I thought, man, that is a great application of what we're seeing in James. It is to your glory to overlook an offense against you because that's God in you. We're now free. We talked about this last week. We're free to not be about ourselves because we belong to Jesus Christ. Look at verse four. It says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Again, James is writing to Christians and he's calling them adulterous people. He's saying you're cheating on your spouse who is God the Father. You're cheating on him when you're trying to fulfill your your worldly desires, your way. You're adulterous people. And if you're walking in the flesh, as Paul says it, or here, if you're a friend of the world, it makes you an enemy of God. There isn't this idea that, you know, a little bit of God, a little bit of the world. Or last week after the sermon, I had a conversation with someone as we were talking about, you know, being on the fence, you know, and are you going to go God's way or the other way? And even being on the fence is going against God rather than being fully on God's side. That's what he's saying. Be fully on God's side. Because if you're not, then you're against him. You don't want him to be against you. In John, he says it this way. If someone says, 1 John 4 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Don't be double minded. Some of the world, some of God, all God's way. Now let's look back. I skipped a couple verses. Look back at verse two. It says, you desire and do not have. So you murder, you covet and do And cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What's this one? Number three, lack of prayer. Why do we fight? Lack of prayer. I can tell you a couple that is consistently battling one another does not have a habit of praying together. It's pretty much impossible to have a habit of praying with your wife And then go off and fight. Or praying with your husband and then go off and fight. Because there's something about prayer. When you're praying together, there's no time you're more vulnerable. Let's be totally honest. Because you're talking to God, who knows if you're lying? (laughs) You're talking to God who knows your heart. And so as you beseech God together, that draws you closer together. So why are we fighting? Because we're not praying. In marriages, we're not praying together. And I would say this. Couples that are consistently fighting, they're probably not praying very well even by themselves. They don't have a great prayer life. Or if they do, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In your prayers, are you praying to get what you want? Is your prayer just a laundry list of all the things you want? Or is your prayer God's tool of making you more like Him? That's what prayer is. Prayer doesn't change God if you don't know that. God is unchanging but prayer aligns us with God. That's what prayer does. So as we spend time in prayer, it is us connecting with Him and asking for things, absolutely, and He gives to those who ask. But it's us becoming, coming in line with Him that we want what He wants. So rather than these passions at war within us, these worldly things that we want, the more we're in prayer, God aligns us and changes our wants. That's huge. He changes the things that we want so we want what He wants, Prayer. It starts with God. This is what we started with last week. The, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It starts with God. So, what's the answer? Let's look on. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I love verse 5 because here's the picture. If you're a Jesus follower, if you've surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord, believe that He died on the cross and rose from the dead, and you've committed to follow Him forever and maybe get baptized, and if you've done that, not gotten baptized, let's do that Christmas Eve. Um, But if, if that's you, the Holy Spirit now dwells inside you. You now have a direct relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is jealous. That's what this is saying. I love this. God is jealous for you. He wants all of you. Again, often our relationship with God is compared to a marriage. Imagine a marriage where one of the spouses goes, I'm going to be mostly faithful, but you know, two days a month, I kind of want to go sow my oats. I want to go do what I want to do. Would that last in marriage at all? Goodness, no. And that's here. God wants us. He is jealous over us like a husband over his wife. He wants all of us and all of you, your your complete heart. So he's jealous for you, which is also for your good. This isn't a sinful jealousy. This is for your good. This is for my good that he wants all of us. And so then he tells us what to do. At the end of that verse, verse six, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Who gets the grace? The humble. And what is grace? Grace is a free gift. That's what grace is. Grace is receiving something you don't deserve. So there's grace and there's mercy, and we often talk about both. Mercy is not giving somebody what they deserve. So, you know, your kid stole the car and wrecked it down the street. They deserve to go to jail. Uh, instead, you just ground them for, there's mercy there. You, you hold back. Um, God holds back what we deserve. Our sin has earned eternal death, separation from God in hell. But we don't get that. That's mercy. But now we also get grace, what we don't deserve. We get the Holy Spirit. We get a relationship with God. We get adopted into His kingdom, into His family, which means we are heirs of everything Jesus gets, we get. That's grace. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're going to talk about this some next week, looking at the Christmas message. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Grace is a free gift of God, of His approval, of His help, of His making you right with the Father. So, who gets the grace? The humble. Not the person that boldly, pridefully, I'm going to get what I want. The one who gets God's grace, His help in time of need, is the humble one. And how can we be humble? Verse 7. The way humility plays itself out in our lives is by submitting to God, bowing the knee and saying, you know what's best, I don't, and I'm gonna go your way. I don't even have to get it. I don't have to understand it. If this is what the Bible says, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm submitted to you, humble. You know, as I was tempted as I was preparing this and looking, to, you know, to look at the stats of our country and these things, but we live in a, in a country that is the best in the world, by the way, still is, but we live in a country that it's really very individualistic. It's about my happiness. It's about my success. And that's, to a certain extent, our country was built on that. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Great things. But we're developing a culture that is different than any culture, really, in the history of the world. Most cultures are, are tribal. That it's about the group benefit, not just mine. But we live in a time where it's really just about my benefit not the group. And so that's what we're trying to even overcome as a church, that it's about God. It's about the church. But here he's talking about, here's how you do it. You submit, you draw near to God. Humble. It's not about you. Our application last week and this week are pretty darn similar. It's not about you. That's how we ended it last week. It's not about you. It's about the other. And I I heard some kind of cool stories through the week of, of, couples who did leave and go, I'm sorry. And had that conversation. Or times where things came up and the idea, well, it's not about me, so this is okay. Humble. Now, as we think about humility, who's our example? Oddly enough, our example is the God of the universe. Jesus in flesh. Philippians 2, 3 through 11, describes this. In Philippians, Paul is writing to this church And he takes a minute here and he describes God becoming a man, the incarnation. And he gives Jesus as our example. This is Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. I'm going to start in verse 3. It says, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." That is above every name. If Jesus was able to be humble, why do we fight for what we want? Jesus didn't. When Jesus went to the cross, he uttered no word. When they struck him, he could have called down the angels and destroyed. He didn't. He didn't fight back. He uttered no threats. Jesus took it. So why do we feel the need to fight so hard for what we want? Rather, As is written in Scripture, we should trust the God who judges perfectly. We can trust Him completely with everything. And then we don't have to fight because He's going to fight for us. When He sees fit, we can trust Him with that. This is in your notes. One of the best things you can do for healthy relationships is to adopt an attitude of humility knowing it's not about you. So if you have a habit of fighting. If 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 fighting and quarreling is part of your life, maybe with your spouse, or maybe with somebody else, or maybe with several people, what's the common denominator? You. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've talked to somebody and they complain about their neighbor, and then they complain about their spouse. And then they complain and, and they list like these four people that they have this battle with. And I go, the common denominator there is you. Maybe you're the issue. Or sometimes that's in the mirror. You know, I'm frustrated here and there and there and there and there. I have all this stuff going on. I'm like, wait a minute. What's the common denominator with all this? Me. And in my life, that situation, then I look in the mirror and I go, what's the problem, though? It's because I'm not walking in the Spirit. It's because I'm not abiding. I'm not walking in consistent, tight relationship with Jesus, dependent on Him for everything. So if you have a habit of quarreling, you're the problem. Now, don't walk away feeling guilty because here's the good news. God gives more grace. Through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to change, to let him live in and through you and see healing, see success in your marriage, in your other relationships. And it starts with somebody. Now, I decided I was just going to read to you a story. Now, last week we talked about um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then we looked in James where James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously. But part of that asking is that then you pursue and get help. It isn't walk out of here and feel guilty. It's it's get help. It's read books. And this is one of those books that I think is excellent. This is uh, Love and Respect. They have uh, conferences and and classes, and it's great. Uh, But here, I wanted to read this story about one member of the couple taking the initiative no matter what. Because that's where it starts. This is a woman writing. She says this. This past October, she sent an email after they went to this conference. She sent an email to them. This past October, I asked my husband to please leave the house. I wanted to be alone. I wanted space. And I just felt like I didn't love him anymore. Reluctantly, he left for a couple of weeks. I knew that my life and the life of the girls was drastically changing and would with divorce. I thought about the shared visitation and how we would also have to sell our home, which we recently finished remodeling, but I didn't care. I just wanted out. Meanwhile, he prayed, studied marriage books and tapes, and made a decision to love me no matter what. The girls were really starting to miss him not being around, so we decided he would return home until further notice. Well, he would hold my hand every night and pray for me and for our marriage. As I stared up at the ceiling, anxiously waiting for him to finish. He would leave little notes or a little flower in the bathroom mirror or on my car. So many little things he would do to show me that he loved me and wasn't going to let this marriage die easily. It just irritated me. I thought, can't he understand that I don't love him? That I don't want to be with him anymore? Why is he trying so hard? I didn't feel that high in love feeling for him anymore. My needs weren't being met, so I wanted out. Very selfish and immature. I was emotionally going through something that neither of us really understood, but he stayed there and loved me through it. I'll spare you all the extra details, but I eventually broke. No woman in her right mind could let go of that much love and commitment. Now, I am very much in love with my husband. I've learned that love is not a feeling. It's a choice, a commitment. We didn't become a statistic because my husband chose to love me no matter what my reaction toward him would be. It's really humbling to look back and see how loving and patient he was with me. Trust me, it wasn't easy. And how he, only through the strength of Christ, saved our marriage. I can't say we're completely out of the tunnel yet, but we're certainly very close. I think that's a neat story of just one member in the couple deciding, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it right. And what God could do through that. So as we finish here, what's our big application? Submit to God. Submit to Him. Surrender to Him and let Him live in and through you and He can change your relationships. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank You that You give the strength that we need. Thank You that You give the wisdom that we need. If this was up to us, we would fail. And we look at the marriage statistics in our country and it's It's horrible. But God, within the church, with those who truly do follow you, the numbers are actually pretty good, which proves that, Holy Spirit, you have the power, you have the strength to help us thrive. Jesus, I thank you that you want to give us life abundantly, not just a life of duty, not just a life, uh, you know, making you look good, although that's awesome, but that you want it to be good for us also, and this is best for us. Thank you that you know what's best, and as a good father, You push us towards what's best. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give us the strength to make any changes that we need to make this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.